Hey everybody, it's Dr. Andy Wilzak. This week I'm talking with Dr. Brooke Gazdag, an organizational psychologist who, since this past March 2020, has been an assistant professor at the University of Amsterdam. This is episode 34 of Untenure Tracks. one study looking at leadership Mm -hmm. and what we tried to understand was what's worse being ignored and left out by your leader or being the target of their bullying it sounds like two very different options Um, but what we found actually is that generally speaking you we find that uh, employees who experience this kind of targeted negative behavior feel less negative emotions than people who are left out. So that seems counterintuitive to me. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Why do you think that is? Like, what's going on there? So one of the ways that we try to explain it is based on the way that employees kind of experience attention from their leader. So, you know, it's kind of this idea of any sort of attention is is good, Mm -hmm. and being left out is kind of this has this visceral sort of evolution, you know, coming from evolutionary psychology, like we don't want to be left out. We want to be part of the group. And so there's this very painful kind of reaction with negative emotions like envy, for example. Mm -hmm. So if I am looking around, I'm in a team and I feel left out by my leader, I have this very kind of deep kind of almost automatic reaction to feel this negative emotion. Like I want to, I want what they have, you know? And with the targeted negative behavior, we find that, of course, we experience these negative emotions, but it's not nearly as severe as being left out. And we find this is actually especially true for more narcissistic employees. Mm-hmm. So, like, what types of leadership settings, I guess, is this so, happening in? Like, 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 who is the leader here? So this would be uh, in an organization that has sort of a team structure. So they might have it in each department. They have maybe a leader where a team of, you know, anywhere from three to 10 people report to this one person. Mm -hmm. And so there's necessarily this kind of group dynamic where you have people who, you know, like based on one theory of leadership says that, you know, each relationship I have with my employee is different, is unique. Mm -hmm. And so based on that kind of approach, you look at it and you could say, if I feel like I'm part of the out group, then that sort of feeds back into my self-concept in a way. Mm-hmm. And so I start to feel negative about myself in relation to others. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the negative behavior, it's almost more clear cut. Like I know that's wrong. I know that shouldn't be happening to me. And so I don't have this sort of self feedback loop that would happen otherwise. Yeah. So does this, do these experiences then spill over into other areas of, of an, uh, a person's life? Like, so, that, so like they have, they're getting ignored at work and then they go home from work and then what happens to them? 
Well, so that's an interesting idea. I, I wish we did more spillover work like that. With uh, We tend to, so as organizational like kind of behaviorists or psychologists, we focus a lot on what happens between those walls at okay. work. But um, we did look at the implications for their behavior at work. Mm-hmm. So we found that actually it lowers their performance over time. Mm-hmm. Then even you know if we measure and we ask them, hey, what's, how is your relationship with your supervisor? And they're in one of these sort of outgroup, uh, being ignored sort of relationships, we find that later on these negative emotions actually predict l- lower performance six months later. Hmm. And so this kind of sticks, this negative emotion, and um, eventually starts to kind of explain a decrease in performance over time. And so, and that decrease in performance then, so I'm just trying to like figure out the, I guess Absolutely. the nuts and bolts of it in my mind. Um, so it's because they they view themselves, they start to view themselves as a lesser employee or like a less capable person? In comparison to their peers in a way. So it's, it's this, really this emotion of envy mm-hmm. that I... I look at what you have and I engage in this sort of social comparison. And Mm -hmm. I see regardless of what your actual relationship is Mm -hmm. with the leader. So we have the same leader, regardless of how you feel about your relationship, I feel like your relationship must be better than mine. Mm -hmm. You must have it better than me. Mm -hmm. And so I start engaging in a social comparison process because a lot of times us humans, I mean, we want to understand where do we stand in the greater social fabric of things. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, we start kind of doing this comparison and thinking, okay, if it's bad for me, then it must be better for you. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. Um, and it does the fact that it would affect like, like overall work performance, but I guess it makes sense because I mean, I, I, my research involves a lot of juvenile delinquency and I think that we would say something similar with like how kids are treated by their teachers and, yes, and building like a parallel relationship there. Um, and I'm wondering, like, if I wonder if people in delinquency research have ever looked at looked at it from that angle of having like a like we we tend to think about stuff as either a positive or negative relationship with either parents or schools, but like the neutral stuff at a school level is super exactly. interesting to think about. Like, well, go ahead. Yeah, it's a this this is this idea of relationships being not just on this positive negative continuum. Yeah, you know. But actually, there being something like indifference, right, uh-huh. or ambivalence, where it's both negative and positive. Mm-hmm. And so there's these other, and so there's this really cool research that also helped helped me to understand our our findings better. And it was like really looking at workplace relationships, not in terms of positive versus negative, but in these sort of four quadrants. Mm-hmm. So it can be, you know, positive. It can be negative. It can be both positive and negative, and it can be kind of indifferent. Like, mm-hmm. I don't really care, you know, you're in the out group. And so that's what we're seeing is that that being in that out group. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, absolutely. I can imagine in a classroom setting yeah, it, that that would feel the same and it would probably affect the students the same. Mm-hmm. Has your work ever looked at it from a leadership perspective? Like, I'm, I'm wondering if mm-hmm. like the converse of this is true. Like, so I'm, I'm uh, either an employer or like middle management or something. So I have people working under me. And I'm trying to figure out if I'm a good boss and I have an employee who's just constantly a jerk <laughs> and, I, yeah. and I'm not like, so like, can the opposite thing be true? Like, can my leadership ability be affected negatively if I think that my employees hate me? Well, so it's interesting. I, so not my own research, but there is some uh, research looking at, well, it's kind of ch- tangential to what you're talking about, but basically supervisor envy. So like if my, if I, as a leader feel envious Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so that's in a way looking at, okay, well, my employees have it a bit better than me. So how do I then try to restore balance in mm-hmm. a way? And so I start to try to, to knock them down a little bit. And so kind of extrapolating from that, I could imagine mm-hmm. that if I have this jerk, <laughs> then I'm trying to restore balance at some point, the same sort of principle, right? And yeah. so a lot of times we find that um, it becomes a bit of a feedback loop. Mm-hmm. And so you, of course, then treat that jerk differently yeah. than you do your other. And so then you just kind of exacerbate the whole problem mm-hmm. in that way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> part, of the, part of the show is for me, like I said, just to think out loud. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, right? and hopefully, <laughs> hopefully not make too much uh, more work for people. Yeah, um, yeah, so like what types of organizations have you been focusing on? So the the goal a lot of times is to go as broad as possible mm-hmm. with the different organizations so that we can make more general claims about work life in general. Mm-hmm. And so I've worked with a lot of different, so we worked, uh, with one. So in the U S we worked with a fast food chain, for example, that was really interesting looking at how, Kind of this again, this relationship with the leader mm-hmm. uh, impacts kind of how I see myself in in the organization. So do I feel like I fit here, mm-hmm. and also do I feel like I fit in my job itself? And so again, we find that this lead, that leaders play a really critical role in that, uh, even in that context. So the previous study was run at a university actually, um, who had these you know huge departments and this is you know all the the administrative support. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's interesting to see that across these contexts, it's the same. The, the leader has this, this huge impact. Um, and then we've also I've done kind of broad panels looking at anybody who has work experience. Mm-hmm. And so for some of my research on negotiations, we actually asked people, you know, recruited people who were professional negotiators mm-hmm. and uh, tried to capture their experiences then as well. So try to go as broad as possible. So I'm I'm imagining that there are people who are listening to this who would like you to maybe uh, talk a little bit more about the difference between... So you just mentioned, like, um, feeling like I belong here versus feeling like I'm good at this job. I could see people yeah. hearing that and, and saying, like, isn't that the same thing? And so yeah. could you talk about that a little bit more, please? Absolutely. And so these two concepts, so it's about fit. Uh, mm-hmm. So they have person-organization fit and person-job fit. Mm-hmm. And so a person organization fit really looks at the values. Do the values that I have line up with the, the, the values that the organization has? And also, do I feel like I fit to the culture here? Do I feel mm-hmm. like I'm you know, part of the in-group? So again, we kind of mm-hmm. come back to this belongingness feeling. Mm-hmm. Whereas person job fit is more about, can I do my job well? Can I execute the tasks well? Am I capable at doing it? And so it's, it's interesting because actually to separate the two is to look at two sides of, of work life, right? It's like, and can I can I do the thing that I'm being paid for, and do I feel good while I'm doing it? Do I feel like I'm, you know, part of the part of the team? So I think this is something that probably resonates with a lot of people in academia, yeah, <laughs> especially now. <laughs> yeah, 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 where we're all uh, dispersed in different places, and yeah, trying to figure out, okay, where, yeah, exactly, how do I fix uh-huh. this huge organization when I haven't left my house in a month? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And can I do online teaching? <laughs> yeah, like, we're weirdly all part of, like, we're, it's kind of like we're all on the same campus now, <laughs> yes, <laughs> you yes, know, exactly. but the siloing is just so much worse <laughs> than yeah, it yeah. ever was. It's like, it's like everybody for themselves 
Almost. Yeah, yeah, it really is. <laughs> and it's like, you know, you'll maybe from your department chair, you'll get a like, hey, you doing okay? <laughs> it's like, there's only one answer. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and it's and just like trying to project into the future and stuff is so i mean it's it's scary and i don't want to dwell on the scary parts of it it's it's just interesting to think about how things are going to have to change yeah. you know from like an examination standpoint up to content like everything you know it's yeah. just it's so interesting to have to live through to get to live through this well, and then, you know, the, the standards of, you know, there's been a lot of talk uh, amongst in, in my network about what are the role of leaders in this context, so department chairs or, you know, managers or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the main thing that keeps coming out is this idea of empathy mm-hmm. so that we have to put ourselves in our sho- the shoes of our employees or the people working for us and kind of, you know, dial back our expectations, recognize that, okay, yes, we're working from home, but we're working, you know, it's a... Uh, the idea that, you know, we're not just working from home, but really, you know, it's, we're working, we're, we're providing this online content in such a circumstance that we never, most of us never expected it. And we're still having to deliver it. And the students, they are stressed. They are stressed more than they, because they're worried about graduating. Mm-hmm. They're worried about how all this is going to affect. They're worried about finding a job. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, you know, it also, as as professors as teachers how we have to have empathy for them as well so it's all mm-hmm. this trickle down effect of and so our university also really the communication has been so i still get the emails from my german my german university and there's huge contrast in the message university of amsterdam is saying we understand it's uh-huh. hard and german universities are like get it together <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> Fitting that stereotype about like German work ethic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <I guess>. exactly. <laughs> so it's very interesting seeing how the two cultures are handling uh, handling this. Yep. <laughs> and and here it's just all over. It's just all over the board, right? Like even yeah, even yeah. within my even within my university, I think responses from faculty have been incredibly varied. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing is like. Without a unified message from the very, very top, you're going to get a whole range of variants that you're just, you're not going to be able to control. And then you're going to have all these kind of domino effects later mm-hmm. on where you're going to find like whole um, stu- areas of study are going to have, a, you know, the students are going to have a completely different experience, you know, in biology than they are in psychology, you know, for example. And so I think it's, yeah, it's a really tricky time to be a leader. I'm glad I just have to lead my class. <laughs> <laughs> just quote unquote. Just, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, how did you how did you get interested in this in this work? Uh, so, I was always interested in in psychology and, and understanding how people think and act and and how we engage in processes to try to understand why people around us are acting and, and behaving in certain ways. And so when I started studying kind of organizational psychology, organizational behavior, I really got interested in this idea of, you know, who plays the most significant role in your kind of your work life. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I got interested in in leadership, because I realized like your interactions with your leader can shape your entire understanding of yourself, even if you let it. 
you know, I remember having uh, different bosses and different part-time jobs and the effects they, different effects they had on me um, mm-hmm. and how I felt about my work, you know, mm-hmm. whether it was selling shoes or uh, working in a pizzeria, whatever it might have been, mm-hmm. it changed my experience completely. And so I wanted to understand that better. And then I also got into negotiations because I feel like you can negotiate most things. <laughs> And I wanted to understand how, you know, how to do that, how to be more persuasive, how to, uh, you know, what are, what are the limits on that? And uh, are there any? And so I, I really find negotiations as a something I didn't realize I was doing. And then once I kind of realized it, I, I wanted to understand it better. Yeah. Sometimes I wish that this was like a video podcast because the look on your face when you're like i realized that everything can be negotiated <laughs> was, like there's very clearly a story there <laughs> i'm not gonna press you on it it's none of, it's none of my business but there's very <laughs> you're not a good poker player <laughs> no, not, not when it comes to negotiation <laughs> which is yeah, ironic I mean, <laughs> I think probably I, I could tell a little bit where I think the when I really realized that I had a, a you know a passion for negotiation was when I started to realize that I was uh, driving my dissertation advisor nuts. <laughs> I was always asking why? Why does it have to be done that way? Why can't it be done this way or that way? And I realized that that was that was a form of negotiation. I was just like, but I want to understand. I, I don't think that that's I don't think that's the best way. <laughs> And here coming from the, you know, the fresh PhD student, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, like a it's sort of like a physician heal thyself kind of moment. It sounds yes. like <laughs> exactly, exactly. Let's apply some of what we're doing to what we're doing. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, could you? I'm not at all familiar with negotiation research. Could you talk a little bit about like what that involves? And I mean, so like what you had just said, right? Like you're asking your PhD advisor, why, why, why? Like, to me, that wouldn't seem like a type of negotiation. That just seems like Socratic, I guess. <laughs> seems like a participative, uh, yeah. But, uh, for me, I guess, so the why was a lot of times my gateway into a negotiation. So negotiation is basically any sort of process where two people are standing, sometimes on opposite sides, sometimes not, but trying to, to essentially come to some sort of a, a agreement or mutual understanding through mm-hmm. that process. And so through that, that's why this, this question why a lot of times opens up that discussion and says, okay, well, if I'm asking you why, that's signaling to you that I'm not quite exactly where you are probably. Mm-hmm. And so we need to, to discuss that a bit more. And so negotiations, I mean, it takes many forms. Traditionally, it's studied uh, in this context of, you know, I have... We have some things that we, we share that we're both interested in, but there's some things where we stand exactly opposite. Mm-hmm. And so how what is this process of kind of mutual problem solving mm-hmm. that we engage in in order to get there? And so negotiations research is trying to understand, well, what kind of emotions do I show you in order to be more persuasive? Or uh, how do I frame my arguments? Or how do I frame my the first offer that I make you? Or, uh-huh. you know, so really trying to fine tune my argumentation to be more successful in, in getting what I want, essentially. <laughs> but but not trying to be manipulative. Huh? Yes, exactly. So this, is, this always comes up whenever I talk about persuasion or social influence. I'm sorry. Because no, no, I can see people thinking of it as like a very cynical type of yeah. thing. And really what you're talking about is like mediation and, and conflict resolution type of stuff. Joint problem solving. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. But it is, 
in a way, I mean, we're as humans, we're always trying to process information as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times with, with negotiations or with social persuasion, I want to figure out how do I, what are the magic words that I can say to you to kind of unlock your understanding of my side? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. a lot of times that's, that's more, gotcha. that's more positive framing of uh-huh. <laughs> what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Figure out ways to get our perspective, like get you to understand or appreciate my perspective or my point of view. Sometimes that can be absolutely part of it. Other times it's a lot of, it's, it's about kind of generating this, this space where you can tell me what you want and I can tell you what I want. And we, we talk through it. And Mm -hmm. so I might not always get exactly what I want, but um, and that's where we, you know, we talk a lot about preparation going into negotiation where I have to know what my, my deal breakers are, my must haves, you know, the things that I'm willing to let go and everything, because that's what this process is all about. Getting those things out there and then putting it together kind of like a puzzle and being like, okay, what, what can we, what can we come, how can we come out of this? And this mm-hmm. is a lot of times, of course, assuming we, we can come, you know, we don't stand so far apart. And so this is not, you know, kind of a hostage negotiation situation, but rather, you know, negotiating with your supervisor or your colleagues or your partner uh-huh. or uh, your children, whatever it might be. And so uh, this idea of, okay, how do I create this space where we can work on this together? Yeah. Um, no, the children thing, I just, I have a six-year-old and we're trying to do online kindergarten now and it's awful. Wow. It's... <laughs> And it's not the delivery. It's just, I mean, two people trying to work full time and then also deal with two small children is very difficult. So thinking about ways I could try to negotiate with my incredibly stubborn six-year-old is is very funny to think about. That might be a completely separate episode. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just have her on just to talk. She would just say hi yeah. and leave. Um, yeah. <laughs> It's like the Zoom bombing or whatever people are <laughs> Zoom crashing or whatever. Yeah, I've been very fortunate that I mean, I've been I've had to record a bunch of these since we've had to go into isolation, and my children have not come downstairs yet to to interrupt anything, and so like fingers all the way across yeah. that that keeps up. Yeah. Um. So, uh, yeah, that's a weird tangent there. Um. So like you're doing like applied like I mean it's just like a dialectic basically you're synthesizing points of view. Yeah, in a way, and and trying to do it. So a lot of times people shy away from negotiations because they think, okay, if I really say what I want, mm-hmm. I'm going to break this relationship somehow. So yeah. I can't have both what I want and have a relationship. But actually, a lot of times, relationships are strengthened through negotiation because mm-hmm. I'm able to say what I want and you're able to tell me and we can build that kind of mutual understanding even if mm-hmm. we don't come to an agreement. I yeah. can still still work out and what's interesting about that is some kind of my last branch of research is looking at gender mm-hmm. and so one of the other things i wanted to understand was well what happens why is it that we see women negotiating less frequently on their own behalves mm-hmm. and so this is a lot of times you know, can be circled back to gender stereotypes not mm-hmm. just the ones that their negotiation partner have of them but also the ones that they internalize of themselves mm-hmm. Like I'm not supposed to assert myself because that's you know I'm women are supposed to be more communal community oriented more other oriented and so if I assert myself in a negotiation 
it doesn't match up. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times we find that that, that is whenever I teach a workshop or I'm in class, that's one of the main concerns is like, Oh, I, I'm, you know, I can't ask for money. <laughs> you know, I can't negotiate for money. It's like, well, if you're not going to do it, they're definitely not going to offer it to you. <laughs> so breaking those, those, those barriers, those self-inflicted barriers down is, is a hard process. And I'm, I, I've gone through it myself. I, mm-hmm. I go through it all the time still, just because I understand it doesn't mean I'm a perfect negotiator all the time. <laughs> yeah, I, I wanted to bring it up when we talk about your teaching. Like, this seems like it might give you superpowers in the classroom. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I wish. No, but uh, I think I think uh, what's been interesting about teaching online is I opened a, an open discussion forum where I was like, "Your questions, any questions you have that's not answered by the syllabus," which of course half the answers are also in the syllabus what they ask but that's fine <laughs> and so I knew I was opening myself up to you know complaints uh-huh. or negative comments or and that did actually happen recently and in exactly um, you know kind of in a negotiation somebody comes forward and they put their demands right they say their positions they say their interests and do you have a chance to react mm-hmm. and so that's one good thing about this delayed reaction I could have my first reaction where I was annoyed <laughs> and then I could calm down and and think okay well what do I want out of this interaction yeah and so that I reframed it I said you know thank you for this for this question <laughs> this gives me a chance to tell you exactly what I was thinking when I when I listed you know when I structured the course this way mm-hmm. it's that I went into did that and so I think it's important to remember that in any sort of conflict or negotiation situation is that you you have to remember what you want to get out of it too. Mm-hmm. So somebody can come in and make all these demands, but you have to, you know, stay level-headed enough or know what works for you. Taking a couple seconds before you respond that can work wonders. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. Just in general, I think people are. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, they think that time is moving faster than it is when they have to come up with reactions, and so. I mean, I, I tell students that all the time when they have to do like presentations and stuff. Like, you don't have to respond the nanosecond that somebody stops speaking to you. It's okay to take like a breath <laughs> and collect your thoughts. Even when you're talking, it's okay to take a breath. Nobody's going to perceive it as like, like, oh my God, they've been standing there silently for 10 minutes and this is uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, this is not how it works. And yeah. that few seconds of time is really going to help you. Um, Absolutely. so, uh, tell me about, um, like, like what types of classes do you teach? Like, how do you bring your, your research on negotiation and leadership into the classroom? So I, I end up kind of doing a variety of different things. So we have one, so previously at the university of Munich, I was teaching kind of a basics and organizational psychology type of class. And mm-hmm. so I always, find that negotiations is a perfect context for a lot of different areas. So mm-hmm. for example, you know, decision making, also very relevant for negotiations culture, very relevant, you know, how do I present arguments in, you know, China versus in the US, you mm-hmm. know, and it could be very different. Or, or how do I um, you know, frame frame our interactions. Mm-hmm. Do I you know, who am I who do I have to negotiate with? Or uh, especially diversity as well. And so I do kind of these fund foundational and then I integrate sometimes these, this, especially this understanding of the role of gender and leadership and, and negotiation and other forms of diversity, like uh, age and race. 
But I really think it's important to have these these real. So I'm in the business school, and mm-hmm. uh, the idea that students graduate without a negotiation class, I find kind of irresponsible mm-hmm. uh, at some point. And so I really try to, to integrate that. And leadership is, of course, a huge piece of that. And so one thing I always want to make sure when I'm teaching about leadership is giving this idea that leaders can be, it's such a broad definition. You know, we can look at people like Greta Thunberg um, and, you know, she's a leader, right? And we can look at people who are formal leaders and say, they're not a leader. Mm-hmm. I won't name names. <laughs> the, the yeah. idea that you know just because you're put into a position whether you know promoted up there or assigned or elected you know leadership is a is a broader concept than that mm-hmm. and so i i hope that the that the students can also see themselves in in some sort of you know leadership role in their own lives as well and redefine it for themselves do students have an idea of what leadership even means when they come into class? Or is this something that you find yourself having to define a lot or? Well, so that is, that's a really good question. Cause I, I think they come in with a lot of preconceived notions about mm-hmm. leadership as management. So we, we distinguish between those two often in, in teaching. Mm-hmm. And so management a lot of times is assigning tasks, making sure those tasks are completed, mm-hmm. um, kind of a transactional sort of situation set up. But with leadership, it can be more about vision, more about communication. You know, as I talked about earlier, this idea of empathy. So how do I, how do I, you know, understand the whole situation, not just what I'm trying to get out of it? And so leadership tends to be a kind of a broader range of possibilities than what they think it is when they first come in. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, sometimes people would be like, well, you know, Greta can't be a leader. But it's like, well. She stood out there by herself, by the sign. A year later, look at where she is. How is that not leadership? Mm-hmm. You know. And so then, it really it is an interesting debate. And yeah, she's been more of a leader than some other people. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the reserve. You don't have to be reserved. Uh, although, yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, I understand why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Um. So, I mean, do you use Greta as an example in your classes? Yep. And I, I like her because she's got so many different kind of diverse aspects to her, right? I mean, she talks openly about um, having autism. She has, um, you know, really one goal, which is to, in, in, you know, impart change in the world. Mm-hmm. It's not about her. Like, there's no ego involved mm-hmm. in it. Um, she leads by example. So she, she, you know, she says one thing and she does exactly what she says. Right. So mm-hmm. that lines up. And so I think, you know, she, she gives me a lot of kind of substance to draw on mm-hmm. when, when talking about leadership, you know, and she's a little girl, <laughs> you know, a young woman. And so that's, you know, all of these things, I think it's an important example because it shows you that it doesn't have to be, you know, a tall gray haired man that's, you know, in a business suit, it mm-hmm. can be, anybody can be a leader anytime. Mm-hmm. I think that's also interesting about what we're seeing nowadays. I mean, I, I, I have seen so many initiatives across different countries where you had people, you know, pulling together volunteers, you know, to in organizing them because they believe that, you know, it's important to help others. And so that's also a form of leadership pulling people together, getting people motivated and moving and executing on a certain goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I'm just curious, like, cause I, I know nothing about like the student body that you 
are drawing from. Yeah. Um, so like here, um, I could see students not wanting to see Greta as a leader for political reasons. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you run into the same thing. See, I think that's, that's one thing that I'm a bit fortunate with being based in Europe and mm-hmm. having her from, you know, a neighboring country mm-hmm. is that I think there's a lot more, they see her more as a peer mm-hmm. because they they have more in common with her. I mean, I'm also, you know, I've been living in Germany and I just moved to the Netherlands and this, this idea of, you know, focus on the environment. And, and so there's a lot of common values that are there amongst the, the, the kids, the mm-hmm. students. Yeah. yeah. You're not dealing with that. 30 to 35 percent that um (laughs) believes the earth is flat and that climate change is a hoax and that the coronavirus is made in the lab and and whatever else (laughs) exactly Exactly. and i i find yeah yeah i when i go back to the states and i i i've remembered or i'm reminded that uh yeah that there are people that think differently which is also good to be reminded of Mm -hmm. um but I, i i do find that i'm i'm quite lucky with you know where i've ended up and and being with a lot of like-minded people mm-hmm. although when i do teach leadership uh i had to eventually outlaw uh using donald trump as an example i was like i can't listen anymore <laughs> I, don't want to, I don't want to hear it i don't want to hear it just it and yeah and maybe you're shooting yourself in the foot there because you're you're now eliminating such like primetime television (laughs) (laughs) meltdowns that he's been having spend the whole class watching clips (laughs) yeah yep yeah i I mean when whenever this is all over just like the like editing a montage together set against like some type of in my mind it's like the sarah mclaughlin like adopt a puppy music (laughs) of of just him like and I and I don't say this. Yes, yeah. I was going to say degrading, but I'm not trying to to um, sound like I'm I'm trying to insult people with mental health concerns um, or anything like that. But certainly, like seeing him go from this is all a hoax to screaming in front of his own campaign <laughs> ad, <laughs> like the sad yeah. the sad adopt a puppy music in the background is yeah. <laughs> I think that's that's key. That's essential. Right. Yep. And I think it's it's interesting because as you as you were talking and this idea of the screaming and kind of coming back to this original study about this negative leadership behavior. You know, whenever I teach leadership, you know, so he he comes up nowadays. Mm-hmm. But what also used to come up is Steve Jobs, and everybody like, oh, Steve Jobs, great leader, visionary mm-hmm. leader, and they list all these positive things. And then I ask the room, who? in this room would have liked to work directly for Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. How many hands do you think go up? <laughs> <None>. <laughs> really? Nobody, to, nobody would want to list that on the day to day. Maybe one or two, you know, thick skinned uh, students will raise uh-huh. their hands. But this idea of having such a, such a tyrant yeah. uh, uh, to work for, I mean, that's, that's tough mm-hmm. to, to get up every day and go into work and go, all right, I'm going to get my next big idea shot down. <laughs> And you know, deal with that. But it's, it's very interesting because he's idealized as a great leader, and that's true. Mm-hmm. It's also true. Both are true. Um, we're, and we're talking about Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs. Okay. Yeah. Just, okay. Just yeah, making yeah, sure. Yeah. Just trying to hold on, hold on to that thread. Yeah. yeah I, I guess I didn't know that Steve Jobs was a tyrant. 
Yeah, so he he would he would really um, you know he was visionary and he was very passionate, and mm-hmm. so sometimes he would just he wouldn't be very patient, and it would it would be a bit explosive uh, with his reactions, and so that's I mean. I'm really, I, I didn't witness it personally, mm-hmm. obviously, but uh, you know some of the his biographies and different mm-hmm. stories you would hear. Hmm. Um, it was it, he was difficult to work with directly. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. an interesting contrast to Apple, which right. I which I also yeah. find difficult to work with. That's a, <laughs> that's a lame joke, <laughs> but I had I couldn't stop myself. It yeah, was it coming was out so and. What was I going to add? Oh, yeah. I uh, I showed uh, some students a clip of a few clips of John Kennedy uh, uh, last okay. semester. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I think so part of it was the, the first Kennedy-Nixon debate. And I think I showed maybe part of his inaugural address first uh, and something. Um, and the students were just like flabbergasted. <laughs> <laughs> and even I was too briefly like like in part because the problems that he was talking about were still problems that exist in the US today and so that was a little disheartening. But then yeah. but then like wow, we used to have John Kennedy. <laughs> like, yeah. And now we don't. <laughs> we don't. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is that leaders can have, you know, again, this such even from such a far reach, they can have this huge impact on how you feel, you know, where you feel like you belong and where you feel like you're, you know, are you being spoken to? Are you being understood? Mm-hmm. Even yeah, the president or the chancellor or whatever, you know, of the country. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my other favorite leaders to look at is um, the prime minister of New Zealand, mm-hmm. Jacinda. And we're on a first name basis now. <laughs> she, she's, she's amazing because she Bearing took office and she took actually um, took maternity leave, mm-hmm. and and then you know come came back and and just was like yeah yeah that was an important time for me you know and and just everything you know lots of empathy lots of perspective taking lots of being a human mm-hmm. and I think that's another amazing example where you can see. You know, just because that's the way it's always been done doesn't mean that it has to continue that way. Yes. <laughs> yes. Amen. <laughs> yes. That is like, I, 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 I've experienced joy now when I hear other people say that because I find myself like almost not screaming, but like shouting from the rooftop someday. I mean, especially in class, I recorded two lectures today about policy and just saying like your degree allows you to come up with creative solutions. And, and just because things have always been done this way, doesn't, does not mean that they need to, you need to continue doing it. And certainly like, or obviously the problems that people tried to solve haven't been solved. And so come up with something new. And I feel like I'm just running my head into a wall sometimes, um, with that. So uh, thank you for, for saying that yeah, too. And that, that's why I got into negotiation. Cause I'm like, yeah. how do you sit, how do you change these things? You negotiate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, the experiences I've had doing even just a little bit of community work have, have been so enlightening to how stuff happens locally. I'm in Northeastern Pennsylvania and, um, yeah. after, after the the 2016 election, I became like heavily involved in the community. Um, okay. And uh, like a ton of stuff. Um, I've since had to back off from a lot of it. Um, 
which is part of what gave birth to this podcast, um, because I had time on my hands and was not spending 14 hour days out in the world. So I may as well spend 14 hour days working at home, I guess. Um, but yeah, <laughs> like, like being, uh, confronted with like entrenched ideologies and like these entrenched power networks and, and things like that. I've just, it's, it's so interesting academically and so maddening <laughs> on a yeah. personal level that Absolutely. people will just say like, this is how things have always happened here. And this is how things are always going to happen here. Don't rock the boat. Yeah. It's, and it's unfortunate. And I, you know, I don't know how it is for you, but it's like finding a, you know, every once in a while when it, you know, kind of give this message in a classroom, you know, you can kind of see a couple people go, you know, nodding their heads and, and it really resonates. And then the rest are like, is that going to be on the exam? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it will be on the exam. Yeah, yeah. It <laughs> will be. The entire exam is going to be on this concept. Yep. And uh, yeah, that's how I, I got involved in, in doing some mentoring and workshops and things like that because I, I wanted more nodding heads in the room <laughs> to be like, yes, let's think about this. Let's challenge these ideas of what mm -hmm. it means to be a leader, what it means to be a negotiator, you know, all these different things. And Yeah. 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 And I mean, I think this lines up with what we were talking about before the show started that like one of the reasons why I love what this podcast has become is that we've been able to kind of create an academic community um, yeah. that I think we all need. <laughs> and even though, I mean, people are, have come into this from multiple disciplines. Like I, I wish that I was rich so I could hire everybody. <laughs> <Just to, laughs> <laughs> start my own yeah my own super liberal arts university <laughs> heavy yeah, yeah. humanities and social science focused and <laughs> just go yeah. from there <laughs> well you know it's, it's interesting i'm i so I, well, I just started the job at amsterdam and uh and then everything hit so i didn't even get a chance to like go in but the irony is, is that my class is on digital leadership in the digital age so i'm going <laughs> online right and as you're saying that, I was thinking, you know, like, it's all about, yeah, like, really, like, finding this way to still be human, to, like, it's, it's a, talking about the digital age and the role of digitalization and robots taking over our jobs. The one thing I keep driving home is that we need to learn how to, how to talk to each other, how to communicate, how to connect, how to understand each other's perspectives and all of this, you know, human side of things, so the humanities, mm -hmm. the liberal arts, that's what, that's what we're doing, Yeah, you know, in this. And, um, yeah. And so I feel like it's going to have its renaissance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hopefully. Um, are you comfortable talking about, uh, being an American teaching in Europe? Like your experiences, oh, your experiences going, going over there and teaching? Cause I'm, I'm personally just very curious about what yeah, that's like. Sure. Like yeah. what's, what's that been like for you? So I, it's, so one thing I have to say is it's, it's, you know, a lot of the instruction is already in English in the business school, especially. Mm -hmm. And so that's been kind of a, you know, it, it's, it's really opened a lot of doors in that way because everybody is interested in, in learning in, in English. Mm -hmm. Um, but the expectations of the students are, you know, there's some similarities of course. Mm -hmm. Um, but the expectations and the, it's the little norms that are different. So for example, in, in Germany, they have, you know, they're very much, so the way they structure the semester is for example, you have lecture all semester and then you have one big exam at the end mm -hmm. and there's a department 
that basically is responsible for telling you what rights or laws basically do you uh, govern how you structure your class. Mm-hmm. So very typical German. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I struggled with that because I, I taught as a PhD student and I had, you know, all sorts of creative things in my syllabus, like group projects and reflections and, mm-hmm. you know, analyzing off, uh, episodes of the office, you know, yeah. all these different things. <laughs> and then I have the, the Prüfungsordnung, so the, the this grading department, basically, or course department, telling me, no, 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 none of that is allowed. And so that was really kind of a big culture shock for me because mm-hmm. it puts a lot of pressure on the students. So then they have this one, and if they miss this exam, that's that's it. So then mm-hmm. the students really want to know every exam, every class, what's on the exam. Can you tell me what's on, you know? And so there's a little bit more of this kind of intensity around yeah. the exam itself in Germany. Yeah. Um, and so that's been, and so I've, I've only taught, you know, four weeks <laughs> in, or three weeks <laughs> in uh, the Netherlands, but not actually there. Yeah. Uh, so I can't say too much about that, but it's been, um, I think they're a lot more casual. Uh-huh. So in Germany, they're very, you know, it's like professor, doctor, you know, yeah. very much into titles. But in the Netherlands, everyone's by first name, pretty mm-hmm. casual and uh, approachable. And so I think, you know, it's, it's always these little norms that are, mm-hmm. that are different. Mm-hmm. But I've but I've, been, I've I've enjoyed the process, and even sometimes when I get yelled at by the grading department, it's, it's all right. <laughs> I want, it's all a negotiation. <laughs> I, I always say I come from the land of uh, you know we don't ask for permission, we ask for forgiveness. <laughs> yeah, no, that's so. yeah. Again, that's become my philosophy. <laughs> To, yes. to survive in this job, like I'm just going to do what I want, and then if I get in trouble, then sorry. <laughs> but, but here's why yeah, I did but, it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And look at how great it went. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh-huh. Uh, and so that's been, um, yeah. So that, you know, just the, the structure of the classes are a bit different and, you know, little stuff like in the big lectures, um, it's completely acceptable for people to be coming and going constantly. And they have these old creaky wooden, uh, you know, lecture halls. And so it's really loud every time somebody mm-hmm. gets up and leaves yeah. and sits down or whatever. And so that's been, that's been different too. <laughs> that's an interesting, like, cause it seems counterintuitive. Like if we're, we're so stressed about what's going to be on our one test, then why are we coming and going <laughs> during You know, I, I will never be able to answer that question. It's <laughs> <laughs> so strange. It is. It doesn't. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And you know, the lectures aren't recorded or anything, so if they're not that, yeah, you know. But uh, yeah, so there's a lot of little little things. There's probably stuff that I've gotten used to now that's completely not normal. And you know, <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, yeah, the and there's not you know they don't really do um, office hours. Mm-hmm. So that's also something that's kind of funny. So people will queue up at the end of class. And you'll be there for an extra 45 minutes just answering, you know, mm-hmm. these questions. Uh, and so they, yeah. So that's that's another kind of structural difference. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. Did your students ever, I mean, did they have other American professors that were no. there? No. So often I was the only, only inter- non-German mm-hmm. a lot of the times. And uh, then in more recent times, so I've been here about eight years, and then probably the last three years or so, it got a little bit more international, but more at the sort of assistant professor postdoc level. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's probably actually the, the biggest difference of working in Germany is they have these institute structures. Mm-hmm. 
And so there's a head professor who sits at the top, and then they have some assistant profs, maybe, and some postdocs, and then some PhD students, and some research assistants, and it's like this, you know, very hierarchical yeah. unit. And uh, and then you you structure your teaching offerings, and so you as an institute offer. Mm-hmm. So if I'm at the Institute for you know leadership, then I'm offering classes on leadership mm-hmm. and I'm constructing them myself and I'm, <laughs> I'm booking the rooms myself and I'm uh, you know uh, dealing with enrollments from the students myself. It's like this very self-contained uh-huh. unit. Wow. And so it's a very different uh, university structure. So they uh-huh. call it kind of self-governance. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that the professors lead, lead the university mm-hmm. as their own. They're like little enterprises. Hmm. How does tenure work there? Oh, that's a whole. Because <laughs> so, if you've been there for eight years, I mean, I've been at my school for eight years, but you're, yeah. but you're. So you're I had this really, yeah. So I had no idea when I moved to Germany uh, how any of this worked. So yeah. I moved and I took a postdoc uh-huh. first, and so I thought, you know, you just take a postdoc, concentrate on your research, and then you know, kind of move move on. And so at first, I was at the technical university. And then I learned about how actually with a postdoc, you know, there's, you can, you know, it's kind of a, a specific phase mm-hmm. after the PhD and you can actually get a second degree <laughs> after okay. your, after your postdoc called the habilitation. And so you can do six more years and basically the habilitation says that you have proven that you can work independently from your professor. And so it kind of is this university seal of approval saying uh-huh. you can go out and get hired now as a professor. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's so long. It What's the point of the PhD long. then? <laughs> yeah, I, my jaw dropped when I found out about this. I was like, why, why would you ever do this to yourself? And, uh, and so, yeah, so that was so my, and my postdoc was a, was a limited time and I did not, I was not really interested in doing this habilitation thing. And uh, so then I ended up doing, so they have three levels of professor in, in Germany. So they have, uh, they call it W1, W2, and W3. And so they had a W1 assistant professor position open up at the other university. And so that's how I ended up there. Mm-hmm. However, there was no tenure to be had. It's a limited term contract, they call mm-hmm. it. And so it was always going to end. They do three plus three years. And then it just ends. Poof. And so finding that's why there's so few professorships. So once you get a W2 that's tenured or W3, which is this like full professor tenured, it's for life. So you Uh could get it at, you know, I think one of the youngest uh, people, you know, I think they're usually around 40 or so Uh when they finally get that. And, or maybe a little bit older and then, and then it's for life. Like usually people Mm -hmm. don't leave. Yeah. And then they don't, uh, they don't make new positions. Mm -hmm. So it's only once somebody retires or mm-hmm. yep. leaves the earth <laughs> then um then a position opens up and so it's actually a, a major pipeline problem that a lot of times people do basically get to where i've gotten and then leave academia uh-huh. because you can't find anything yeah or you end up a postdoc for life that's also a major issue in germany yeah <laughs> i am stunned <laughs> like the u.s system has such a problem with uh like power imbalance but yeah. we are like 
anarchy compared to <laughs> the European model. Yeah. That's that is, wild. That is specifically German. That yeah. Specifically German. Yeah. And so like where I'm at now in the University of Amsterdam, it's uh, more of this department structure. Mm-hmm. And so they have a ten- you know, it's tenure track and everything. And so okay. that's why I've moved from one assistant prof position to another. Yeah. Um, but this one is uh, like a shortened tenure track at least. But it's, okay. yeah. So you, this is, you this do, is a common story. Yeah. You do have the possibility of security at Amsterdam. Exactly. Exactly. And so, um, but a lot of, I have, I have friends who have, you know, been a postdoc, uh, since before I moved here. So before 2012, who basically live on six month contracts who go from, you know, six month contract or maybe a year and a half. And then they have to find funding someplace else and then recreate their role. And it's, it's a mess. It's, and you know you caught you talk about gender representation. Mm-hmm. The higher up, of course, you go in the professor, you know, role here, the fewer women, you know, obviously you yeah. see. And you can imagine how, what kind of havoc this would yep. wreak on any sort of personal life you might want to have <laughs> at yeah. some point ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It it really seems to me to be like designed intentionally to maintain, uh, like a white male power structure yeah. like nobody I mean, nobody is going to want to endure the amount of harassment and discrimination and everything else that it takes to get to one of those lifetime positions exactly. unless you yeah. are either like in like superhuman thick skin or yes. a sociopath <laughs> <laughs> you're describing a lot of uh, people I don't know <laughs> no but I mean it, it is very it's been very interesting coming into this whole system as an outsider and mm-hmm. integrating into it and then once my contract was running out i i was i had was faced with this question do i want to try to fight and stay in this german system or you know do i make other sort of choices i mean amazing opportunities mm-hmm. but also like leaving germany and and uprooting again and mm-hmm. you know i was up for it but it was it was a really a, a tough you know, yeah. tough decision. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when, you know, you're getting this kind of career advice where you're like, ah, well, the main goal of your career is to get that W3 full professor tenure. And you're hearing this for, you know, year after year. And I'm like, and then it comes back to this idea, but really, but why? Is that, a, is that the best way to do it? Is that the only way? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I am having those, those very similar discussions with myself. About, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> Like I got tenure and then the question was like, okay, what do I do now? Like yeah. I have it and I can yeah. go up for full and I go up for full in five years if I want it. And I think I want it. Like I got two kids who would be nice for their college fund, but then do I want it? <laughs> Is this how I see like my work? <laughs> you know? So I'm sure if my department chair listens to this, he's probably going to text me i might get a text from him from the future now like stop what you're talking about (laughs) what are you doing (laughs) of course you're staying here um but it's like it's it is interesting like think like try especially now with everything going on like we were talking about how coming out of the pandemic how universities are going to be redefined like that includes like what does it even what does being a professor even look like right you know what does it mean to be a leader for our students now you know, because they're they are going to come away from this knowing like 
these are the people who treated us like garbage during this. And these are the people who didn't. <laughs> and yeah. ultimately we, we serve at their pleasure. Right. Yeah. So right. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. I think a lot of people, I don't know how it is for you, but I, I think a lot of people forget that that's part of the reason we're in here. It's not just for the research. It's also to have this positive, I mean, my goodness, like the students are, are, I mean, they're trusting us with telling them something valuable. <laughs> and yes, the <laughs> test is important, I suppose, but the idea, but it's you know, not, <laughs> it's actually not, I, I would completely, you know, yeah, I would completely do away with exams if I could, but the tests know, are, no, I, yeah, I, uh, like looking ahead to what my, I mean, because we don't know if we're if we're gonna go in the fall or not. You know, nobody does. I've heard rumors yeah. of, of schools um, just scrapping their fall semester entirely and saying like they'll start their academic year in twenty twenty one. Oh uh, my wh- gosh! Which I, I feel like that's a disservice. Which seem which to me seems like an insane bureaucratic decision. Like there's <laughs> like nobody with any kind of soul made that decision. If that <laughs> exactly. if that's happening, it, it seems so bad. But like I, in my in my one on one classes, I do multiple choice tests more out of yeah. necessity for my time because I teach at a four four, and I'm not going to do that anymore. Like if we are in person on August thirtieth or not, like I'm not doing those tests anymore because they're not they're not useful. No. <laughs> they're yeah, not they at don't, all. They don't do anything for them or for us. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And we're facing the same thing, like, okay, having to spontaneously kind of transition to online because the semester just runs a little bit differently uh, mm-hmm. in, in the Netherlands um, time-wise. And so we have this this period that just started at end of May is when we're, you know, our exams are. And, you know, everything got moved online proactively. But, you know, basically they were like, if you want to do a multiple choice exam online, you have to generate a test bank of 600 questions <laughs> and i was like i think i will just quit <laughs> before i will do that <laughs> i was like that is a very that is a very unique form of torture that would be my <laughs> and um and i was like essay exam fine fine i'll do it i'll do it for 400 kids fine i'll do it <laughs> and I'm like i'd rather do that like 600 i think i think yeah no but it's interesting how, you know, trying to, it's like uh, the exam is so important that it's kind of absurd idea. <laughs> 600. <That's... laughs> I don't think in my life I've made that many questions. No. How, like how many are just variations on the same question? I don't know. Yeah. You you said that I remembered a class I had years ago and they were, they were bugging me for a study guide for their, it was a blue book, like essay test. Like Dr. Will's like, can we have a, we need a study guide. We need a study guide. And I just yeah. lost my temper and I gave them a study guide with like 40 questions, but a lot of them were like stupid questions. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, like what's the weather or like stuff yeah, like yeah. that. Like, and, or, and I was, I was just so frustrated with them in that moment. Like, fine, you want a study guide. Here's your flipping here, study here. guide. Oh, yeah, yeah. Deal with it. And they were just yeah. like, thank you i guess yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you don't need a study guide just you know whatever <laughs> yeah just be in class and talk a little bit but you don't have to talk to me you can talk to each other in, like the group time or whatever but it's just yeah it's tough because i i feel for them too you know i, oh, I yeah. remember i was i put myself under a lot of pressure but it's 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 so unfortunate especially when you're doing something that's really when you're teaching them something that like can affect how they see the world and understand themselves and and it's like, oh, 
reducing that to a multiple choice question is just painful. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And I don't like those, those, I guess to bring it back to start wrapping things up. I don't like the negotiations on my time. Like I, yeah. <laughs> I have so much, I have so much work time and so much home time and try to max, like maximize that work part of the work life balance and and then having to have these like cynical discussions about like okay something has to suffer somewhere so it's going to be you guys get a test that is ultimately not beneficial at all <laughs> which That's is it. kind of gross like yeah. yeah, I know, but it's, 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 you know, we're all just doing the best. Yeah. <laughs> and that's one thing uh, when I do teach classes on negotiation, I really set myself up for trouble <laughs> because then all the students think, oh, well, she enjoys this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no. Like you're this, a... once, you, once you leave, do this. Not, not to me. <laughs> yeah. Like you're a, like a wizened old chess master. waiting for some new move to be played (laughs) I'm like don't misread the situation (laughs) that's that's wonderful Um, we're going to stop it there Um, I have to do zoom office hours now for my students or else we could be talking for another hour I'm sure Um, thank you thank you so much for doing this yeah, yeah. Thanks for, for organizing and for, for having this mission. I think it's really cool. And yeah, let me know uh, if there's anything else I can do. Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So I uh, hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. So if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenured Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.